When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and joining me for The Bigger Picture today is Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. So, we talk just after yet another cabinet reshuffle. Um, I can't remember when the next one, wa- last one was, but I can't help feeling <laughs> something we do talk about relatively regularly. I know you get terribly excited by these. <laughs> should we, should the rest of us get excited by this? I think actually, in this case, it, it is worth getting excited about the reshuffle. And of course, people are probably rolling their eyes and saying, yes, he would say that, wouldn't he? <laughs> but um, actually, this is an interesting break with what's happened before, because fundamentally, politicians have been in the public eye government has had arguably more of a role in people's everyday lives than it has had for a very long time so of course the people who make the decisions and have had to make difficult decisions over the last two years since the boris johnson's government came in first with brexit and now with the pandemic it does matter who the secretaries of state are although the civil servants say the same ministers do set the direction of their departments they are the public faces of it and also it says a lot i think about the person who really matters at the centre of this, which is Boris Johnson, because mm. this is ultimately his his prime ministerial power of patronage. It's not just about who's up and who's down. It's about the people he chooses to keep around him at the mm. cabinet table. And there are reasons to, 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 to say that it has a, a limited scope. But of course, for, for the prime minister as well, reshuffles are a good example of how they see themselves within the party. And the message at the top of this, before we go into any of the appointments, is that we have a prime minister who clearly feels far more secure in himself than he did about a year or so ago. He's been through the pandemic. Mm. He's felt comfortable to jettison people who were very important to him in terms of the rise. So he's demonstrating very little loyalty to people like Gavin Williamson, who ran his leadership campaign, like Robert Jenrick, who were um, instrumental in getting him involved in the Tory leadership ballot in 2019. But there are also people around the cabinet table who there are still considerable questions hanging over as well. Priti Patel remains as, as a senior cabinet minister. Rishi Sunak is still chancellor, you know, despite the fact that, you know, we have the the question about whether or not he and Johnson have an increasingly worsening relationship. The well, darlings, the prime the- minister and the chancellor not getting on—that's never happened before, has it? What we do have now is a. A, a new contender to talk about in the senior ranks of government, who is a, a darling of the Conservative grassroots in the form of the new Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss. But we also have people like Dominic Raab, who were seemingly not demoted, but kept in, in, in the inner circle of government. We have a Deputy Prime Minister now in him. So it's an intriguing reshuffle as well. Um, the people that have been let go are not going to be much mourned, apart from, I would argue, Robert Buckland of Justice. But it's 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 a fascinating reshuffle, and it's one I think that is has been long mooted as well. It's been held over people's heads mm. for over a year now. Before we go into the nitty gritty, perhaps we should 
talk about the context because it comes not very long after the new social care plan, which involves a rather substantial uh, tax rise, possibly breaking a, a central plank of the Conservative manifesto. How important is the fact that it's coming in the wake of that? Well, um, I mean, Liz Truss in particular was one who, who, who understands, spoke out against it. Well, timing is everything with this. And this, so we're coming out not just out of uh, lockdown, but mm-hmm. the Conservative Party conference, an in-person conference, is only a couple of weeks away. In person? Most, oh, gosh, sorry. They, Don't to go on a sidebar there, because we talked not long ago about the gonna have virtual Labour conference. Yeah. Okay, so no, how they're are they doing it? conference, yeah. Okay. So a lot of MPs will be, you know, I know people who are going and attending. I won't be going myself, mm. uh, for, unfortunately, for the first time in, in many, many years. I'll be missing the party conferences, but... Um, the so and then of course we've got the spending review and COP26 coming up as well. So mm. the eyes of the world are you know for COP26 will be on Britain, but the spending review also is a major political activity with three years worth of funding sloshing around uh, government at a time when, as you say, taxes have just gone up. And the government last week announced a manifesto breaking tax promise that some people compared to the um, tuition fee pledge pledge broken by the Lib Dems in 2010. What is clear is that for the first time at the weekend, the Labour Party edged ahead of the Conservatives. And looking from an analysis from, say, Professor Matthew Goodwin from Queen Mary University, he he read between the lines that actually Conservative voters are now turning back to apathy rather than to the Labour Party. So there, there is a potential... There's going to be a threat. I, I, I'm concerned about what will happen at the next election, I think, because there's, there's some potentially quite awkward numbers that could come out of that in terms of parliamentary arithmetic, especially if the Conservatives have their majority collapse but still remain the largest party. Sort of think about what happened in 2017, but time is a couple more than that, a majority of 80 going. There is by no... What we did get, though, with those plans was a Prime Minister who was trying to show he was prepared to grasp the thornier questions uh, what we are, though, a long way off is meaning is a meaningful set of policies on social care reform. So we know, for example, there will be a cap on costs for a lifetime. There will be more of an emphasis to try and uh, support people for in community care. But these are going to be softer proposals that were put forward by the Dillnut Commission as well. And it, there still will be means testing on everyone except the uh, last £20,000 of your uh, savings and assets. Funnily enough, you and I will remember this from when we were talking about four years ago, the thing that undid Theresa May, the so-called dementia tax, is actually more generous in terms of protection. So the the complexities of social care are usually best handled in the middle of a parliament. So again, that's smart timing to bring those mm-hmm. out. But the implementation will be closer to the next election, and that timing is bad in itself. But the headline thing is the fact that we have a conservative government raising taxes in the wake of the pandemic when it committed not to raising one of the three main levers, this causes the 1.25% rise in national insurance that will also be paid by pensioners as well for the first time. Yes. Yes. You talked there about um, um, people turning to apathy. If there was an apathy party, that, I confess, might be the one I couldn't be bothered to vote for. Um, <laughs> so let us go into some of the, the details now, having sort of set it in context as to why it lasts. I mean, out go Jenrick and, and Williamson. They are people you have mentioned on many occasions after the last few years, mm. and not normally in glowing, praising terms, it had to be said. 
suffice so Gavin how did Williams, they last so long I mean particularly Gavin Williams well this is this is the thing the, the time Boris Johnson has finally wielded the knife to get rid of some much uh, maligned deadwood around his cabinet table here now we've had a year, a year in which when Dominic Cummings was in the senior advisors have come and gone we've had numerous senior officials um, leave not just because of Brexit but also three out of the four senior civil servants change including the cabinet secretary Mark Sedwell going uh, the attempted politicisation of the National Security Advisor. And yet, cabinet ministers like Priti Patel, who faced allegations of bullying, Robert Jenrick, who was connected to a property deal uh, which was seen to be too closely connected to a donation to the Conservative Party, uh, Gavin Williamson's handling of the exams, uh, stuff, and, and the, the, the grade inflation that resulted from that. Mm. The Gavin Williamson was always going to go. That much is clear. Boris Johnson has, 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 doesn't like Rich and kept him around largely because he, in terms of political dynamics, Boris Johnson likes to have a cabinet of what I would probably more charitably call useful idiots. And that's what he's had mm. until now. Unfortunately, there's, there's only so much time before these people start to reflect badly on him as well. And he also has to think about rewarding members of the newer intake too, because we're nearly... Um, 20 months on since the general election now he could be as little as 20 months away from the next one so Boris Johnson has to think about rewarding new MPs and showing them there is actually a career path from loyalty his his uh, stock as an election winner he's he's burned a lot of political capital in the last 18 months of the pandemic and he's hoping his calculation has always been with the social care tax rise and with the reshuffle that his capital within the Conservative Party, which is the only thing that matters between elections, the Parliamentary Party and the membership, will be shored up if he listens to them and puts the people that they like at the top of Cabinet. And that's where Liz Truss comes in. So, Well, that may be a good moment just for us to pause for breath and then we can discuss her. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. So Liz Truss, a, a, a minister who I suspect many people not really following politics, closely may not have heard about until after Brexit, when she sort of has become ever more visible. So tell us about her and why she's been promoted. So Liz Truss is an MP for Norfolk. She has been in the cab. She's been a minister pretty much continuously since 2012. She has been one of those people who has been talked about as a possible conservative um, uh, leader in the future, but she hasn't actually run any of the contests yet. Very much on the libertarian wing of the party. Uh, She has a pretty impressive roster of cabinet jobs under her belt. So she started it under um, David Cameron as childcare minister, Secretary of State for the Environment. She served as the Secretary of State for Justice under Theresa May, and then the Chief Secretary of the Treasury until Theresa May left government in 2019. And under Boris Johnson, she's served as Minister for Women and Equalities, the Secretary of State for International Trade, succeeding um, Liam Fox in that role. And she's now been promoted to the Foreign Office. So she's been given one of the, the traditional four great offices of state. The interesting thing is that she's actually... Uh, be given the role that has a lot of presence in the world's age, but not a lot of policy mm. associated with it. And she's spent a lot, a lot of her time. And in fact, if, in, in, in Westminster circles, Liz Truss is perhaps best known for 
slightly quirky photo opportunities and also a 2014-15 conference speech when she um, is gurning at the camera and talking about opening up new pork markets in Beijing. So she is a she is a darling of the Tory right. She's seen as someone with libertarian instincts and she has, she, although she's never actually, um, she, although she didn't actually choose to run to succeed Theresa May, she she has shown an interest in deregulation and the benefits of Reaganomics. And under her um, under her brief at trade, she's been responsible for bringing in uh, the first post-Brexit free trade agreement with Japan, so which is a considerable benefit for those people. And also, she is somebody who Boris Johnson thought was a useful appointment to make because he needs more women around the top table as well. Mm. And actually, arguably in her, you do have an experienced uh, cabinet minister, but she, her name has been connected in the past with a move to the Treasury, but that hasn't happened yet. And was Dominic, Dominic Raab's shift, presumably we consider that to be a substantial demotion, um, how much do you think that was because of him staying away on holiday for too long while the kerfuffle in Afghanistan was going on with the retreat? I mean, everything, to be honest. Uh, uh, yet another one of Boris's bungling uh, bozos around the cabinet table there, being on holiday while Operation Pittant was going out, while there were Afghan refugees clinging to the side of planes and then not coming back and then discovering that the call that he'd chosen not to make to the embassy to try and get um, you know, people out of the country. Uh, what did happen... And there's a fascinating account from this from future and this is that he didn't not he did not go gentle into that good night uh rob did run against boris johnson in 2019 um he's not somebody i'd say seen to be a lot of someone with a lot of, of ability but dominic rob has gone to to, be, to become the secretary of justice the lord chancellor of britain he's a former um He's a former justice minister anyway, so he's going back to the department. That he, mm. no, his, his ministerial career is is patchier. He was out of government for at least a small period, um, about a year or so uh, between May and Cameron before he was brought back in again. He last, famously lasted about four months as Brexit secretary. So he's, he's, he doesn't have a lot of hefty cabinet experience, certainly not the volume experience that Liz Truss has got. And I should say again, volume experience doesn't necessarily mean a good minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dominic Raab is somebody who, I, uh, as I understand it, from who've worked with him, is not particularly well thought of, wasn't particularly highly rated as foreign secretary. But he's also now got the honorific title of Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. So there's a running joke going around that he has pulled a similar uh, trick to what Angela Rayner did with Keir Starmer when he tried to reshuffle her earlier in the year and walked away with another with another with another title. Mm-hmm. But again, uh, we, we, we don't normally find deputy prime ministers terribly influential, do we? I, mean, I, back I, of, I, I think some of those in, in the last 10, 20 years, um, not necessarily I, titans of politics. I think the last one who had any real clout was probably Michael Hesseltine under John Major. I think that was and even then the title. The title is only very sparingly used yeah. by the concern. Most people will think of John Prescott, and, who was a man, although a considerable political operator, not a man who commanded a great deal of respect. Nice. But it is, an, it is, it is not, a, it's not a role we have to keep an eye on. It's there just to give him a sense of yeah. seniority. It's, it had its most re- relevance during the coalition when Nick Clegg was the effective deputy head of government because the, there were two parties in there. Um, we probably ought to talk about Michael Gove as well. I mean, some people might be slightly surprised that he's um, 
emerge in the way he has, given that, you know, if you look back, is it five years ago? I mean, Gove's probably the man responsible for Theresa May becoming Prime Minister rather than Boris Johnson. Mm. Michael Gove is the great survivor of Conservative cabinets. He is the longest serving minister. He's had all but 11 months of this government's time in office in the cabinet. He's, he's served in more mid-ranking government departments than virtually any other minister apart from Sajid Javid. Um, the one thing Gove has never done really is he's never been trusted to get a seat around the top, the top of the table mm. uh, because he seemed to be too tricky, arguably. He, but he has, but he is often put into departments that have tricky portfolios. So he has moved from the cabinet office where he's very much at the centre of things, but he's he's gone to the housing and planning department, communities department, where he will lead on not just the tricky issue of housing and local government and homelessness, but he will also be responsible for the government's levelling up agenda. Now, if anybody's going to put any sort of substance behind that phrase, it's Michael Gove. Mm. So we have to wait and see. But of course, we had that. I have to mention the fact that we had that rather odd incident a few weeks ago where he turned up in an Aberdeenshire uh, nightclub on a, you know, just just having a nice dance. And, you know, I I know we weren't on air at the time. So it was, uh, it was, it was something that intrigued me. And and I'm I'm glad to see he's still in the cabinet, though, because he, you know, he's he's had a personal time tricky going through a divorce. So it's, it's nice to see that he has. He hasn't been sacked for that reason. So before we move on, perhaps we ought to look at the the polls. I mean, it seems to have happened relatively quickly. The Conservatives have gone from what appeared to be an unassailable lead to being behind in the polls. Yes. And to be honest, I think that it just shows the fragility. I think obviously the usual caveats, opinion polls are, as ever, barometers. They are, they are only ever snapshots. They are the very best educated guesswork, I would say. But we have to look at the trends here. And the fact is that Boris Johnson now has a situation where he's taken his the arguably most controversial decision. And I'd put this on par with arguably the Conservatives raising uh, VAT. Hmm. And bear in mind that a lot of the people who he claims to have won over to politics, he said, look, trust us, lend us your vote. Um, this tax will... Uh, effect will take money out of people's pockets. What it isn't going to do, it isn't going to be regressive towards the lowest paid. If you're still earning above a certain, it, it, the highest paid, it basically hit middle income and is more than will the lowest paid because of the uh, national insurance threshold and of 2% over, and then the, the threshold below a certain number as well, not being paid. So that's a bit of a, a red herring. But the prime minister now has a cabinet where you can actually envisage more people than just Rishi Sunak taking over from him. Mm. You can see Liz Truss running against him. You can see Priti Patel doing it. You can see Sajid Javid doing it. There's at least three or four people around that cabinet table now who could be a future prime minister. Um, and Johnson has created the space for them as well. And arguably, I think, he, he you know, there's a, I saw a prediction the other day, uh, yesterday, that the, the, the next Tory leadership election will be between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. And I think that's a fairly fair assumption to and, make. And- Obviously, you could understand why prime ministers want to surround themselves with useful idiots because they don't necessarily want people who might challenge them nearby. Do you think that means that Boris is tiring of of being where he is? It's hard to say, really. And I think when we were having this conversation a year ago about when the prime minister had his brush with death, and he is one of the things that I, I I think is that he probably isn't enjoying being prime minister as much as he thought he would do, and that's partly, I think deserved in Boris's case because he's wanted it for so long mm. and I think 
he's clambered over any which way to get to it and he's he's been able to avoid many scandals that would otherwise have finished off other politicians careers but he's also a man with a young wife and a young family as well and part of me wonders we talk a lot about the you know probably over over egged influence of Carrie Johnson behind the scenes I mean the fact the fact that the fact that a, a prime minister would consult their spouse to me is something that is completely uncontroversial in fact it's in, in Theresa May's case no one no one thought twice about her going and talking to Philip May he wasn't painted in this uh, he wasn't painted in this uh, like the carriage Carrie Johnson is painted in. It, it's it's it is a very sexist um, portrayal of her. I don't I don't know her at all. But it you know the, the same things weren't said of you know you couldn't imagine a Margaret Thatcher wouldn't have gone home and sounded like yes. Dennis Thatcher who who doesn't with those closest to us about our well, work. Well, yes, particularly as well. you want to talk to somebody who's not necessarily competing for your job and also who you trust and is there for yes. you at the end of the yeah. day. But the. I suspect the main influence that she probably has on him is saying that, look, you know, make time for your family. We've got a young a young son. We have another child on the way. And I, there is no evidence for this conversation ever having taken place. I'm completely supposing here this is complete conjecture on my mm-hmm. part. But it wouldn't surprise me if there has been the talk about him doing five, six years in charge and then stepping down. I don't know if Johnson wants to be like Margaret Thatcher and going on. Maybe he, arguably he should try to be more like Harold Wilson and pick the time of his own departure correctly. And it's not outside the realm of possibility, given the fact that Tories are already thinking about the next election, as we're, we're going to touch on, that Johnson has done this cabinet reshuffle so he can arguably have a cohort of successors around him where it was before there was only really one and that was rishi hmm. uh, okay let's uh, take a very quick pause for breath and then we'll talk about something else sharing ideas about money this is share radio This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Where now, Mike? So I think we need to really have a look at a policy decision that's been one of the most uh, talked about, certainly in Westminster, over the last year or so. And so uh, the day that the reshuffle was taking place, there was a motion down in the House of Commons in the name of the Labour Party opposing the removal of the £20 a week uplifted universal credit that the government put in place during the pandemic, which effectively put £1,000 in the pockets of the poorest people in society. It was the government's main, excuse me, the main action of support towards the lowest paid in society uh, during the pandemic, Mm. alongside the many billions of pounds that Rishi Sunak spent Mm. on furloughing. The trouble is, is that the UK's levels of social security, if you look at things like sick pay, benefit rates, statutory maternity leave are, although are comprehensive in terms of coverage, are not generous in terms of rates. We do not pay uh, forms of uh, benefits, but partly because consecutive governments, both Labour and Conservative since the 1980s, have made the argument that it is better to incentivize people into work by ensuring they have just enough money to get by on. Now, there is a uh, there is a there is a, an argument to be had about that. That is not about this debate. Yeah. What this is about is the fact that uh, the motion that was down there were four Conservative MPs who warned against removing it. And this this is really an intriguing sign of how the tectonic plates of British politics are are moving, Simon. 
at the moment. We have a Labour Party that last week opposed a tax rise to pay for social care. And we have Conservative MPs, albeit only a few, and a Prime Minister, arguably, who have presided over a massive expansion of government, Mm. tax increases, and now Tories that are speaking out in favour of keeping an increase in benefit payments as well. This is really, I think, an intriguing sign of how the traditional styles of British politics are are breaking down. And this is arguably why the Labour Party is having so much trouble at the moment. But for them, opposing our benefit cups is a no-brainer. But the fact that there are Tories speaking out for this as well is a constant source of, of intrigue to me. What we did see was a particularly poor piece of messaging from the welfare secretary, Dr. Therese Coffey, who kept her job. Mm. Not somebody who's terribly well thought of, uh, I would say, but she, she, she remained around the cabinet table, who said that 20 hours worth of work was equivalent to about two hours worth of paid work. Well, anyone who knows anything knows that the that's actually not true. The uh, the national living wage is seven to eight pounds an hour. It's not. Um, it's not. It's not uh, 10. So she's taking a lot more here than just, you know, and again, but that again, that's the traditional argument there. But the fact the government felt the need to raise, again, Tory pragmatism won out. They recognised they needed to put more money into benefit systems. Um, the Chancellor is going to be under increasing pressure not to um, remove the uplift in the spending review in a, about six weeks' time. And it's a tricky decision because it's one, I think, that will arguably, alongside the um, alongside the uh, the issues we've discussed so far and the changing personalities at the top of the, of the Tory party and around the cabinet table, that will probably decide the direction the Tories go in long-term as well because an issue like this becomes totemic. If they're going to spend money on that, well, so they're going to be prepared to spend money on. Mm. Okay, now w- w- let's talk about this possibility being floated that we're going to get a, a relatively early general election. One would have thought that a party that gets a majority of, of 80 would probably want to go to the full term of Parliament. But it, we we understand that Oliver Dowden, who's now the new Conservative chairman, or, or co-chairman is he, mm. um, has been telling party staff to, to, to get ready to fight an election. Now, I read yes. that right? Yes, you're quite right. And so um, many people will be saying, well, who is Oliver Dowden? He is one of <laughs> Boris Johnson's uh, closest lieutenants. He's one of the, the MPs who helped get Boris Johnson elected and somebody who lent him uh, his support quite early on. And he's been tasked with moving from the rather dizzying array of responsibilities at culture, media and sport, to getting the Conservative Party ready and as he said he has the privilege of quite running the shop as it were the his priority has been briefed out to the daily telegraph so we can i think assume this is fairly gospel mm-hmm. is that the that he wants the party's organization to be ready for a general election which has to be held before the end of 2024 now this there's, there's a couple of assumptions on this firstly the government's committed to repealing the much maligned facebook uh, fixed term parliaments act which would mean that the Prime Minister could then decide when he wanted to go to the country. Mm. So whether it was Boris Johnson or not, I suspect it probably would be. Uh, One does wonder if if Johnson does want to step down early, he might choose to go to the country perhaps a year earlier. The Telegraph Mm. uh, reports he's eyeing up May 2023 or June 2023, so a summer election, very much the opposite of his December poll, which would only be a couple of years after the last one, bear in mind it was 2019, 2020. And I think he's calculating 
that once they've got the spending review in place, if the economy is recovering well, the Tories can go to the country in a snap election and hopefully uh, at least keep in power and keep Labour at bay for another five years then. I mean, if, for Keir Starmer, that would be... Also, I think the, the other reason for going to the country sooner is that it gives Labour less time to flesh out what they stand for. Keir Starmer is mm-hmm. currently penning a 14,000-word essay about what he actually thinks. Yeah, how, and how do we know how many words it is? Uh, if you think back to days when we were studying and writing essays ourselves, uh, Mike, being told to write a certain number of words, I found... <laughs> always was incredibly difficult. Isn't mm. it better to actually say what you have to say and then work out how many words you've written rather than go to a particular length? Why 14,000? I think that the, in all honesty, the, 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 the idea of this of this um, essay is everything that's probably wrong with Keir Starmer's leadership. And I should say that, you know, I, I, I want to give Keir Starmer a fair crack of the whip here. I've spent a lot of time in our conversation maligning his predecessor, mm. Um for, for, for justifiable reasons, I believe, but I, I, yeah. but I also cannot pretend that Keir Starmer has been a glowing success in his first 18 months as Labour leader. And uh, to be honest, the, the sort of consensus around Westminster, certainly among public affairs professionals like myself, is that uh, the Labour Party at the moment are really on the pitch; that they're not making the running. They are, they are they're opposing things, but there's no idea about what they really stand for. And you've got, you know. A, hoping Keir Starmer basically has a choice. He can either choose to fight his party's left wing for the next two years until Boris Johnson goes to the poll in as little as 20 months' time. Bear in mind that would put us halfway through this parliament. Uh, Or he can turn around and start having a good, long, hard think about what he actually wants to stand on in as little as two years' time. But unfortunately, if Boris Johnson takes 12 months out of the equation, what we haven't got time for is a long, lengthy academic exercise that has arguably bedeviled too many Labour leaders in the past. No no one one ever said that Clement Attlee, Harold Wilson and Tony Blair weren't clever people, but they were also people who were more in touch with things, whereas the more scholarly Labour leaders, I'm thinking here of Ed Miliband, I'm thinking Mm. of Gordon Brown, tended to come unstuck. And the intellectual socialist idea is not saying that Starmer should really be looking at here. He needs to be looking at what policies Labour can stand for. What does the party actually believe in under him? Does it want to go more blue Labour? Does it want to become more social democratic? Does it want to go full on Corbynite again? Labour has that choice. But with the Tories going down this route of sort of um, populist, nationalist, big spending, that's squeezing Labour in a way they never thought before as well. And that's yes. a very dangerous thing that's happening at the time. And there are more than I, this has been talked about so many times. And I, I, I don't want to overrate the pudding here, but Labour's at a low ebb here. And unless Starmer gets this right, he's not going to build on, let alone having a chance of winning the election after this one. There won't, it may not even be a Labour Party around in 10 years' time mm-hmm. if it continues the way it's going. The party's hemorrhaging money, laying off staff. There's restlessness uh, among issues. It's preoccupied with a lot of issues which don't have cut through with the wider public, even though they are important, specifically issues like transgender rights that you know are important to certain groups of people but are seen as archetypal of sort of the war on woke from the right. Mm-hmm. But equally, they're not looking at how they win back the seats that crumbled away from them to give them a solid base and anywhere outside London and university towns. Mike, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tennessee blog. Mike will be back in discussion with me in a fortnight's time. Mike, thank you very much indeed. <laughs>
The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.